Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here this morning. Can I add to the welcome that Colin gave you? And also uh, thank those who've taken part already in the service this morning. Last year in Scotland, just over 50,000 babies were born. If you want the figures, 26,200 boys, 24,600 girls. And if you remember this church, you'll know that we've played our part in this. Uh, the Register General for Scotland publishes the list every year. And they reveal not only the numbers of people, but the names given to the children. Interestingly, there were over 2,200 different first names for boys, but 3,200 different first names for girls. And the lists, if you look at them on the website, if you're interested, show the most popular names in Scotland in 2004. For the second year running, Lewis is the most popular boy's name, and Emma has retained the top spot she has held for the last five years. Among boys, the top movers are Aidan, up 25 places to 32nd, and Sam has moved up 24 places to 34th. Matthew and Adam have both dropped out of the top 10, and there have been notable reductions in popularity for John, Craig, Michael and David. Among girls, the top climber is Kira. We all know why, up 79 places to 32nd. Followed by Millie, who's moved up 26 places to 42nd. But Kate, Bethany, Stephanie, your names are on the fall, I'm afraid. You can check the details if you like on the website and find out what your name is doing at the present time. Or, if you're interested in these kind of things. Well, anyway... <laughs> All of us have given names, and those of us privileged to be parents, and it is a privilege and not a right, give names to our children. In our culture, the names we choose are often a matter of fashion, determined by people popularized in the media, or often chosen from family history, in which names are passed down the generations. Uh, the most thoughtful may choose a name because of its meaning. And among Christians, Bible names are popular. There is no one in Scripture who didn't have a Bible name. Did you know that? <laughs> Although there aren't too many Jezebels and Judases around. However, in many non-Western societies, as in the ancient world, names carry a lot more significance and are often chosen extremely carefully. For your name is more than just a name. Your name represents the whole person, who you are. So if someone asks you, what is your name? Lesson one in language learning. You may well choose not to carelessly disclose your personal or intimate name in case that person took it and abused it or misused it and in doing so defamed your character and your reputation. Now this is the background to our subject this morning, the third of the Ten Commandments. And the reason I've chosen the title, What's in a Name? Let me remind you, as Colin did at the beginning, what the third commandment of the Ten says. 
It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. It's Exodus 20, verse 7. If you grew up with a Christian background, you may know the older translation from the King James Version, 1611, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And most of us who come from that kind of background probably think, at least this morning in Charlotte Chapel, I can relax. This is at least one of the commandments where I am off the hook. For we take this to apply, this third commandment, to people who use the name of God or Jesus carelessly, even as an oath or a curse. In the ninth edition of the Concise Oxford Dictionary, published in 1995, horror of horrors, this is how it defines the word Jesus. Jesus, colloquial interjection, an exclamation of surprise, dismay, etc. Brackets, name of founder of Christian religion, died circa AD 30. As bad as this is, and a sign of the times in which we live, that many people only know the word of Jesus as a common expletive, I don't think that's the main thrust of what this commandment is about. Certainly it is much broader in scope. And like all these commandments, it is first and foremost addressed to God's people who own his name, who are commanded not to misuse the name of the Lord your God. Look what it says. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So rather than letting us off the hook if we claim to be Christians, it places us on the hook as we discover that misusing the name of the Lord our God covers far more than using it as an expletive. So what I want to simply try and do this morning is to unpack what this means. We really need to lay some foundations first of all. So I want to do three things. Talk about what it means to know the name of the Lord our God, knowing the name of the Lord. Secondly, to bear the name of the Lord, bearing the name of the Lord. And only finally then will we understand the thrust of what it means to misuse the name of the Lord our God. Okay, let's make a start then with knowing the name of the Lord. In a song written during the period when he professed the Christian commitment, Bob Dylan wrote a song which picks up on an aspect of the account of creation in the book of Genesis uh, that's often overlooked. It's actually a great song. Uh, it's, in the, see, it's in Slow Train Coming if you're a Bob Dylan fan. I've got it on tape. Um, and it's called Man Gave Names to All the Animals. You probably ought to have played it, but never mind. If there's students in there, I could probably got away with this, but never mind. Uh, but he picks up an important point. If you read the story in Genesis, man names the animals. Genesis 2, verses 19 to 20. This is what he says. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? You know, bring along, you know, a horse. What do you call this then, you know? <laughs> or a camel, you know, a horse invented by a committee. Well, anyway... And uh, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. In the song, Dylan pictures man looking at the animals and choosing an appropriate name. In English, of course, not in Hebrew, but the point is well made. 
You see, to give a name to something means that you understand it and are in some ways responsible for it. So interestingly, the last name that Adam chooses is that of the woman, the helper that God gives him. For her name, as in English, is related to his. Man, woman. In Hebrew it's ish, isha. The two words are connected together. So this is what it says in Genesis 2.23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So Adam names the animals and his wife. However, there is one being that Adam does not name, did not name. That is God. In his book on the Ten Commandments, which I've recommended before, J. John writes, God does not let human beings name him. Why not? One reason is that God is above us, and in the Bible, the inferior does not name the superior. Another reason, and probably related, is the fact that no human being could name God properly. We wouldn't have a clue what to call him. Any name of God would have to refer to who God was and would have to be in some way descriptive of him. That would be far too much for us. For one thing, we cannot understand God enough to name him and for another, our language is inadequate for us to even try. Now, of course, if you are here last week, if you practice idolatry and break the second commandment, this is not the case, of course. Second commandment we looked at last week says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. What you make, you control, and so you name it. The sun god, the moon god, the fish god. You see, idolatry is making God in our own image, and we cannot name him, for he is beyond our imagination. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, God has revealed his name and who he is to us. He has revealed his name, which reveals his character. And that's the reading that we had, the first reading this morning from Exodus 3. God calls Moses. And he says to Moses, you have to go and deliver my people from Egypt. I've seen their oppression. You have to lead them out. And Moses has a problem. First of all, he doesn't want to go, but, and that's dealt with. The second problem is this. What will happen, he says, verse 13 of Exodus 3, Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Now, notice what he's asking. He's saying, they don't just want to know what your name is. They want to know what your name is because that will tell them who you are. If I can put it in irreverent terms somewhat, they'll want to know if you're up for this job, getting them out of Egypt. Who are you? Now notice the answer God gave him to pass on to his people. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And as we saw in our first study of the first commandment, this special name translated I am, very mysterious sort of name, 
it's written in capital letters, always in the Bible, with capital Lord, means something like, I am the ever-living one. I'm not a fallible human being like you. I'm in a different category to every human being and to every other so-called God. Which are just idols, nothing. The creation of man's imagination. But the name, of course, is more than just the name. The name then reveals the character and what this person does and can do. So the Lord reveals his character. When Moses goes into Egypt, the Lord reveals his character and his power by sending ten plagues against which the gods of Egypt have no answer. The superpower gods of the day are proved impotent. The Lord reveals his name by what he does. And Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge the name of the Lord. He doesn't say, oh, oh, this is the Lord, I better worship him. Despite the evidence, and the final judgment comes, when Pharaoh and his armies are drowned in the returning waters of the Red Sea. Now notice what the Lord says. Why does he do this? He acts in judgment. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know what? They'll know my name. That I am. I am. I am the Lord. But at the Red Sea, the Lord also acts in character by bringing salvation to those who acknowledge his name, the people of Israel. As the waters of the Red Sea part and they pass through on dry ground and ultimately they are saved. So the Ten Commandments, back to the Ten Commandments, are given to the Lord's people, those to whom he's made himself known. Those who've received his salvation. Notice how the Ten Commandments begin again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, the whole record of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, from then onwards, is a record of the Lord and who he is and what he does. I didn't count this myself, I read it in a book, but the name the Lord is found 6,828 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the general name for God is found another 2,600 times. And so, for example, the Hebrew hymn book, the book of Psalms, is full of praise of who the Lord is, praising his name. He won the great Psalm, Psalm 103 begins. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Why? Because his name reflects what he does and the psalmist goes on. Praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. He forgives your sins, he heals your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desire with good things. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's a record of who God is and what he does. For these people who know the name of the Lord. Now that's the Hebrew scriptures. Then you come to the New Testament, the New Covenant. And the fullest and clearest revelation of who this God is, seen in human flesh, in the person of his son, Jesus. Ever noticed that before Jesus was born, he was given a name by an angel acting on instructions from the Lord? The fullest and final revelation of God. You are to give him the name Jesus. It's a Hebrew name, Yeshua. Because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 
And living up to his name, all that Jesus did from then on, lived up to his name. Who is this Jesus? He's the Saviour. He reveals God's character by what he does. By what he says, people said, we've never seen anything like this. We've never heard anything like this. And finally, he fulfilled his great mission in that second reading we read. The condescension of Jesus. Although he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Down he goes to the depths. Being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But it concludes with the exaltation of Jesus. Did he live up to his name? Did he fail when he died on the cross? Not at all. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him what? The name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now think for a moment about the man who wrote that. A strict Pharisee named Paul. Saul of Tarsus, his Hebrew name. He once told his stories, recorded in the book of Acts, to a king about how he became a messenger of Jesus. And he said, listen, I didn't start off in this. I wasn't born in... A Christian home, so to speak. He said, I was convinced, notice the words very carefully, this is Acts 26, 9. I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because he said what these Christians claim about him is blasphemous. And on one of his missions, to destroy the followers of Jesus on the road to Damascus, a light from heaven shone, he was knocked to the ground and he heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, notice what did he say? He said, who is this? Who are you, Lord? What's your name? Who can do this? He recognized it. And the answer was like, it must have been a bombshell in his mind. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He realized that Jesus is Lord and was given a mission by Jesus what was his mission? to make known the name of Christ among the Gentiles among the nations now this leads us then into the second part of this commandment that those who know the name of the Lord and know the Lord who bears the name we bear his name bearing the name of the Lord let's just go back a little bit to the Old Testament again many Israelites literally carried the name of God, when they chose their children's names, they often included the name of God or the Lord in the name of their children. So, if you're reading the Bible and come across these somewhat unusual names sometimes, although many have been adopted into our own culture, if you see the two, two letters L, E-L, that's usually the name of God, and if you find a name that ends, usually ends, in written in English, I-A-H or J-A-H, that's the name of the Lord. So, for example, think of a famous person, Daniel. Daniel means God has judged. Uh, one of his three companions, you remember he had three companions? Were thrown into a fiery furnace, he went to Sunday school, you remember the story? His name was Azariah. Azariah. The Lord has helped. That's what it means. 
You see, the name you bear carries your allegiance to the God that you worship. That's why when I lived in India, many people who became Christians from a non-Christian background would often adopt a Christian name because their old names carried names that were with connotations to you, often Hindu deities. Now, think of Daniel and his three friends. Interesting fact, isn't it? Daniel and his three friends, the people of Israel were carted off into exile in Babylon. What did the Babylonians do? Well, they trained these young men that they'd specially selected, promising upper-class young men like Daniel and his three friends. You know the first thing they did? They said, we're going to give you new names. So Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. Which probably means in Babylonian, though it's a bit obscure language, means keeper of the hidden treasures of the god Bel. And Azariah was called Abednego, the servant of Nebo, another of the Babylonian gods. You got a lot more choice if you were a Babylonian because they had loads and loads of gods. You could choose different names. You see, the change of names was meant to reflect the fact you now have a change of allegiance. And the challenge for Daniel and his friends was, how do we preserve our identity in an alien culture and in an alien religion whose God seemed to have won the day? Imagine Daniel saying, I don't want to be called Belteshazzar. I worship the Lord. God has judged. Yeah, sure he has. That's why you're here in Babylon and why we're the top dogs. Now this was true not only for individuals, it was true for the whole nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, the name Israel, is inherited from one of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, third one was called Jacob. Why was he called Jacob? Well, he was a twin, the second of twins, and he came out of his mother's womb literally, grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And so his parents called him Jacob, Yaakov, which means he grasped the heel. And he lived up to his name. He was a grasper. He was a cheat. He was out for number one. But God said, I'm going to take this man, Jacob. I'm going to change him. And you made me remember that amazing wrestling match at the, at the, at the brook Jabbok when the Lord in human form wrestled till the break of dawn with this man, Jacob. And at the end of it, Jacob said to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the Lord said to him, I'm going to give you a new name. You'll no longer be Jacob, you'll be Israel. Israel means, Israel means he struggles with God and prevails. So Jacob becomes Israel. But again, the name is more than a name. You see, these people now were called the people of Israel. They were meant to display the Lord's character and deeds. Let me put it this way, they were meant to live up to their name. You see, bearing the Lord's name means you display the Lord's character. And that was why God chose them. Not because they were special people. You don't choose people like Jacob if you're on a talent hunt for the best person to start a new nation of God. You rule him out straight away. He's a cheat. He's a twister. You see, God chose people like that. And like you and me, if you belong to him this morning... Why? So that people see the transformation and they see the name that we bear and it reflects the character of the one that we serve. So if we call ourselves Christians in Charlotte Chapel, people are meant to look and say, that's what Christ is like. The way that these people relate to one another and how they love one another. 
care for one another. That kind of distinctive community we've been thinking about in our church, conspicuous to Christ. That's what you're like. And that was God's whole purpose for the people of Israel. He said, I'm going to use you as an object lesson so that all these people who've made up their own gods in their own names are going to see what the true God is like. Because they'll look at Israel and they'll say, that's what God's like. At the end of his life, Moses, when he finally brought the people of Israel to the edge of the promised land, some 40 years of wandering later, he said, this is what Moses said to them, this is uh, Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. So all people will know the Lord. And in that final speech, looking ahead, Moses tells the people, he said, the Lord is going to make his name known in a special place that he'll meet with you. Deuteronomy 12. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you've vowed to the Lord. Now this place eventually was located in Jerusalem when the temple was built. And the Lord said, I'm specially going to make my name and my character known as a God of forgiveness through the sacrificial system. This is the place where my name will be exalted. You can read the story in 2 Chronicles 7 of how they, they, built, they built the temple. It's an amazing story. And when they built it, the glory of the Lord, God's character, filled the place and they couldn't speak. They were just overwhelmed by the glory of God. The priests couldn't even enter. They fell flat on their faces and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord and praised his name. Now with the coming of Jesus, it's very important to see this, the focus shifts from a place to a person. So that Paul could write of Jesus, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 1 verse 9. Everything that Jesus did and said reflected the name of God, the character of God in all its perfection. So in his gospel, John, one of the apostles, in the opening chapter of John's gospel, one of the people who lived with Jesus 24-7, every day, every hour, for three years, he could say of himself and his fellow apostles, we have seen his glory. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So, if you're a Christian, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. It's great, I've been. I'd love to go again. But you don't need to go to Jerusalem to find out and to worship God in all his fullness. You worship God in a person. You remember that conversation Jesus had with a woman at a well in Samaria on that journey? It's in John chapter 4. And they got into a religion. This woman brought up religion, as people do. And she said, we worship God on this mountain. The Samaritans had their own mountain called Gerizim. And he said, you worship God on that mountain, Mount Zion, where the temple is. Jesus said, well, woman, a time is coming and that has come. When true worshippers will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor that mountain. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a change, a paradigm shift in the order of worship. You worship God in a person. So we worship God in spirit and truth 
If you want to be a worshipper of God, you need to worship God through the one in whom he has made himself fully known, who bears the name of Jesus. We worship in the name of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, For where two or three of you are gathered, notice the words, in my name, I'm there with them. Matthew 18:20. And then he tells his disciples these remarkable things. This is, we just take these words for granted, but if you come from a Jewish background, these are, these are mind-blowing words. They're either the worst blasphemy or the most incredible truth. In that day you will no longer ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So that's why when Christians pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. It's not some kind of little slogan that you put at the end and you say, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, amen. No, you're saying, I'm coming to the great God, the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. And I'm approaching his throne. And it's a throne of grace. And standing by the throne is one who pleads my cause. An advocate with the Father. And I couldn't come to this God of glory and power. That the priests fell flat on their faces before. That Moses had to take off his shoes because the ground was holy. I couldn't come to him on merits. How can I come? How can I ask him for anything? In the name of Jesus. Well, we sing before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. This is what it means to be a Christian. That when you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can approach God in the name of Jesus. You pray in the name of Jesus. Why? Because it's the name above every name. There's no higher authority you can go. No other person you can go to. And so what does a Christian want to do? Well, you want to proclaim the name of Jesus. You go out in the streets like the apostles did. Acts chapter 4. They were told to shut up and the apostle Peter said, We can't. Because why? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And despite opposition... Despite being flogged, they won't be silenced. Why? Because they're prepared to suffer for the name of Jesus. Not just prepared, they rejoice. Acts 5.41 The apostles left the Sanhedrin, Jewish council, rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. What for? For the name. What name? The name of Jesus. So Christians bear the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. It should be seen in everything we do. It's not just we come together to worship God on a Sunday. Everything we do is worship. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that what? Confess his name. So when people look at you and how you do your study, students, tomorrow... And how you behave, behave in your family, parents, and how you relate to other people, everything reflects the name of Jesus. It's part of your worship. He is worthy. Now, take a long time because you need to lay the groundwork to understand that. The scope of the third commandment. Let's come thirdly and finally to misusing the name of the Lord. 
How do you misuse the name of the Lord? Well, the word translated misuse in Exodus 20, verse 7, or take in vain in the old versions, suggests it means something false, without meaning, or lacking lacking in worthwhile purpose. It means to use the name of the Lord lightly or carelessly. Now, you can be guilty of this, first of all, in what you say, not just in using the name of Jesus or God as a swear word, but using his name thoughtlessly, which so often we do. So Christians sometimes say, even Christians in high office this week, God told me. Well, maybe he did. Or the Lord led me. When in actual fact, we're actually doing what we wanted to do, and we're just trying to sanctify it by using God's name. J. John challenges, not, don't name drop with God. Think carefully when you say that kind of thing. It may well be true, but be careful what you say. Another writer, Stuart Briscoe, warns against using God for my own ends. A danger for every professing Christian, from politicians to preachers. But an even more serious problem arises when what we say does not match what we do. We can be guilty of misusing the name of the Lord in what we do. Now, this is what happened to the people of Israel. It was an important issue. See, God's complaint time and again to the people of Israel was, listen, you're bearing my name, Israel. And you're dragging my name down into the gutter by the way that you behave. You're bringing disgrace on my name. What you say is contradicted by what you do. Isaiah says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they drag God's name and his reputation into the gutter. And then the surrounding nations, looking around, they say, oh, is that what the kind of God you worship? They turn from him in contempt. And the whole purpose that God chose them is destroyed. And it's a serious matter. Notice what the Lord says. He will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And here's the great and awful thing. Rather than allow his name to be dishonoured by a nation or a person, he will judge those who misuse it. That's what happened to the people of Israel. The Lord judged them by sending them exile. He said, rather than you staying where you are, professing my name and bringing disgrace on me, I'd rather take you out of it altogether. So he sent them into exile. That's what the prophet Ezekiel said. Wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. Wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Ezekiel 36. See, God has got a concern for his name, a righteous concern for his name, and we should have the same concern too if we bear his name. Because it's an issue for Christians and churches as well. If what we sing and say on Sunday is contradicted by what we do tomorrow morning on Monday, then we dishonour the Lord's name, we're guilty of breaking the third commandment. And as with the people of Israel, it is a sobering thought that the Lord will not hold us guiltless if we do that. If we persist in that. I don't mean you never make a mistake or you never lose your temper. We seek to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. But if you are living a persistent lifestyle that contradicts what you claim 
as a Christian, then the Lord will not hold us guiltless. Plasters as churches. If we are not a distinctive community of believers being transformed by the power and message of Christ, as our vision statement says, if we are not conspicuous for Christ, we're just like everyone else, the Lord will not hold Charlotte Chapel guiltless. Oh, you say Charlotte Chapel's been here 200 years. Our anniversary's coming in three years' time. We'll always be here. Don't assume that. Look around our city at the church buildings. They're only buildings, but they're a reflection of the people of God and what has happened in our nation. That God, rather than having his name defamed in Edinburgh, prefers to remove that witness. When the good news of Jesus first came to the great city of Ephesus, set his great centre of occult practices, we read in Acts 19 that those living in the city, when they saw what happened... When Christ was proclaimed and demons were cast out and people turning faith to Christ, we read, they were seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Everybody said, that's Jesus. Those are his people. Sadly, 40 years later, the risen Lord Jesus speaks to that same church in Ephesus. You can read it in Revelation 2. And he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and I'll remove the lampstand. What's the lampstand? It's the witness for Christ in Ephesus. He said, I'd sooner remove the lamp that gives a wrong light than let it continue to shine in the wrong way. That's what happened to the church in Ephesus. The Lord would rather remove our witness than allow us to bear false witness to his name. So... So this commandment, we're coming to a close, this commandment applies especially to those of us who bear the name of the Lord. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is really of, of secondary importance to you yet. <laughs> but if you claim to be a Christian this morning, to bear the name of Christ, then it's a sobering thought that if we misuse the name of the Lord, he will not hold us guiltless. The book of Hebrews Chapter 12 again says, verses 28-29, it says we must worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. This is the New Testament, for our God is a consuming fire. The quote is from the Old Testament, but it's quoted in the New Testament. Why? Because God's always been a consuming fire. Not this nonsense about it was a consuming fire in the Old Testament, it was something different in the New Testament. His character is the same. And if we've misused his name, if this morning God has challenged you about your witness for him, if you bring into this church the people who know me and you best, who we live and work with, and said, what do you think of Christians? And what they'd say? Oh yeah, that person's different. They stand up, speak the truth. They don't live like the rest of us. They're distinctive. Or would they say, well, they go to church on Sunday and I play golf. They're into religion, I'm into golf. <laughs> no different. What a challenge. Let us worship God acceptably. A final conclusion. I keep saying conclusion, but this really is. It's a kind of litmus test as whether you're keeping the third commandment. It's this. What does the name Jesus mean to you? What does the name Jesus mean to you? In a moment we're going to sing a final hymn. Written by a man who described himself as a blasphemer. The only time he ever used the name of Jesus was as a curse. 
By the age of 23, he had abandoned himself to a life of debauchery and sin, drunkenness. He was involved in the dreadful slave trade in the 18th century. In fact, he was so bad that he was enslaved himself at one time and finally freed. And he was carted off on his father's instruction. A remarkable story how he was found in the West Indies and he was found enslaved himself, a white man. You mentioned in those days. He was taken on board a ship and taken back home. Halfway across the Atlantic, there was a tremendous storm. And he was sleeping below this young man. And he came up the decks and as he mounted the ladder, one of his fellow crewmen came up to the top in front of him and he was swept away into the sea and lost completely. And this young man suddenly realised his eternal state before God. And he records, he prayed, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. And for the first time he prayed and he used the name of Jesus. And amazingly God heard him. And saved him, not only from the sea, but from his sin. And even more remarkably, John Newton became a minister of the gospel and a great hymn writer. Most people know his best known hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. He meant it. If you're not a Christian this morning, the story of John Newton says you need to confess your sin and come to Jesus. You need to come to God in the name of the one who is able to save you from that sin. But another of his hymns that we will sing expresses his changed attitude to the name of Jesus. How he became not a blasphemer but a worshipper. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. In a believer's ear, soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, drives away his fear. What does the name of Jesus mean to you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege we have by grace to be called by his name, to be owned by him and by you. Lord, if any of us here this morning are ignorant of who Jesus is, or if we've turned our backs upon him, we pray this morning that we might find salvation in the name of Jesus. And if we have misused his name by what we say and by what we do and how we've been living, may we come again in repentance and faith this morning. We thank you that we can do so, for there is forgiveness and cleansing and a new start available to all who come in the name of Jesus. May our lives this week reflect the character of the one whose name we bear, so that we honour the name of Jesus. And that those who see us likewise honour him also. And we ask it in the name, the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.